Mark 13, verses 32 to 37, if you turn there in your Bibles. But concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Be on guard, keep awake, for you do not know when the time will come. It is like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Therefore, stay awake. For you do not know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, or at midnight, or when the rooster crows, or in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. And what I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. This morning we're in Mark chapter 13, as has been mentioned already, we are in Mark chapter 13. We're going to begin by looking at verse 32 and onward. We're in this Olivet Discourse for the third week. We're kind of going backwards to finish it up. We're actually backtracking after that that, uh, season of missing two weeks here in the pulpit. Uh, Here we are in the third week of chapter 13. So what do we know so far? We are at this end of the chapter. So far, if you go back to verse 1 through 4, we see a prophecy and a question. We see that Jesus has prophesied in that first section of Mark chapter 13 that the temple and Jerusalem is going to be destroyed. And not just destroyed, utterly destroyed. Here's what he says. There will not be left here one stone upon another that will not be thrown down. That's Jesus' word concerning Jerusalem and the temple. The, the disciples then go out of the city with him and go up on to the Mount of Olives and they ask Jesus a question. They ask a when and a what question. When will this happen and what will be the sign? And Jesus' response comes in a variety of points that we've then broken down into essentially two more messages. In verses 5 through 13, he says, be on your guard, do not be anxious. Essentially what he's saying in that next section, his first answer to the question of, when will this happen? What will be the sign? I mean, you can see they're, they're reacting to the seriousness of what Jesus is saying. And his first word is, be on your guard, but don't be anxious. Bad things are going to happen, but that's nothing to be surprised at. You're going to see bad things happen. But, but don't think, just because you see bad things happen, that the end is here and it's time to flee. It's kind of like another place in the Gospels where Jesus says this to his disciples, and by extension to us, that we hear Jesus say, Be wise as serpents and innocent as doves. There is a certain pragmatism. There's a certain practicality to watchfulness, to being wise as serpents. But in light of the presence of God with us, which is one of the first things that Jesus highlights in his response to the disciples, in light of the presence of God with us, we have nothing to fear from this world. So we can be wise as serpents and see the dangers of what is coming and what is happening around us, but we can be innocent as doves. We can take shelter in the shadow of his wing. Then he continues in verses 14 through 31 that we looked at in the second week of our study by explaining a particular evil and destruction that is coming. 
So yeah, there's generally bad things that are going to be there, and don't, don't be afraid. But there is a particular evil and a destruction that's coming, and when you see it, that is the time to flee. That in this particular case, when you see this particular evil, this particular destruction coming with a sign that he's going to give them that it is coming, that's the moment where wise as serpents means run away. Don't just stay and say, well, we're also innocent as doves. No, run. There's destruction coming and you don't want to be caught by it in Jerusalem. One of the ways that the Lord is with us is by his word. And sometimes his word issues sincere and significant warnings. So it's not enough to just stay where you are and say, well, the Lord is with us. Yeah, the Lord is with us, and he's with us by his word. And he said, when the abomination of desolation comes to Jerusalem, flee, flee, run away. It's wrong-headed to think that because the Lord has said he's with us, that that doesn't mean that we have nothing to be concerned about. What we ought to be concerned about, anything that he's told us to be concerned about. And he's with us by his word, by his spirit. Really, what that means is that we ought to be diligent to live in light of the warnings of Jesus. In this specific case, the disciples were warned of the coming destruction of Jerusalem and his temple. And they ought to be concerned to listen to his warnings, flee at the appropriate time. Again, the Lord comforts his disciples with the promise of his presence, specifically. Right in the midst of telling them, disaster's coming, and when you see it coming, when it's really, really close, there will be a sign, and he's giving you information about it, and then When Jerusalem would be destroyed, and we know now that it's A.D. 70, and they fled, he also tells them, not just there by my warning, I'm also very present. And so he tells them that he's going to be present by his promise to reign from the throne of heaven. Destruction is coming, but the Lord, the Son of Man, according to his own word in Mark 13, reigns in power and glory. So he's not just there by word and warning. He's there by the presence of his kingdom reign. When Jesus says his kingdom is at hand, he's saying, if you reached out your hand like this, you could touch the king. That's what the disciples could do on that Mount of Olives. They could reach out and touch Jesus. That's how close the kingdom is. And now he's telling them the king's going to take his spot on the throne. So the kingdom is still at hand. This still present. So be encouraged. And then we come to verses 32 and 37, which is our topic this morning. And Jesus turns to not a a particular day that was in an immediate future, but now he turns to a future day and a future hour. And his instruction to the disciples and to us is to be on your guard and keep awake. Interestingly, uh, Joel Fair has also been preaching through this passage uh, in Cross Point Coast Cape, and we should rejoice with them and God's provision of a facility for them to gather in this morning and in the coming Lord willing years. Joel, as he's been pre- preaching through this series, he actually titled all three of the sermons Keep Awake. I don't know if he just ran out of inspiration or what. But actually, if you look back at the application point each time, the, the application point really is keep awake, stay awake. And he simply titled it at part one, part two, and part three. But the interesting thing is, and really the argument that I've been trying to make during the course of our time in this 
chapter is that, yes, the application point is stay awake. But each time that he says it, it has a little bit of a different particular meaning for the people of God. What does it mean to stay awake in this particular moment? So that's what we're going to ask this morning. What does it look like to stay awake in the moment in which we live today? Heavenly Father, I pray that you would give us eyes to see and ears to hear, that we would give attention to your word. You are with us. Your word has been spoken in our midst. We've heard from our God according to his word and his spirit this morning at work in the congregation by your word. Lord, I pray that we would wake up, that we would give attention, that we would stay awake, that we would receive your word, and we would walk in accordance with your warning, your call, your truth, and particularly your call to faith. We would trust you. Lord, I pray that you would do your work by your word and spirit this morning to not only inform us, but also bring us the transformation according to your promise and grace. Thank you, Lord. We pray this in your name. In the name of Jesus, we pray. Amen. So if you look at verse 32, where we start in our passage today, it says this, but concerning that day or that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven nor the Son, but only the Father. Which leads me to ask the question, if he says concerning that day and that hour, it leads me to ask what day and what hour. I mean, it's natural, right? We ought to ask that. What day and what hour? Well, previously, if you go back just a little bit to really a, a previous message to verse 24, what does it say? But in those days after that tribulation. So Jesus has spoken about those days. And now my argument is that he changes topic to now speak about that day and that hour. Not a collection of days that come after a tribulation, but a particular day and a particular moment that is coming yet in the future. Jesus gives a number of details regarding those days in verse 24. It's a time frame about which he is personally well informed. And he, he prepares the disciples in the previous passage to flee on that day that they might be spared an impending destruction and, and, and not only to be spared the impending destruction, but also to go to the ends of the earth with the gospel instead of being destroyed in Jerusalem. So Jesus knows a lot about those days. And he gives them a lot of information about how to respond in those days. I argued is those days referring to the destruction of the temple in AD 70. But now we come to verse 31, and he speaks about that day and that hour. And Jesus knows, and you can be absolutely sure of what he said regarding what came before, but you can also be absolutely assured about what he said about that day and that hour. Specifically, notice the word but. But concerning that day and that hour. I think that's a sign to us that he's, he's changing topics. He's speaking about a different day and hour than those days. He's no longer talking about the destruction of the temple. He's left the topic of the prophecy that he offered at the beginning of the chapter and about which the disciples asked a question, and now he's warning them about something that they don't really have on their radar yet. Jesus is changing the subject. This is a day about which Jesus does not have many details. 
It's a final day that sort of looms over the more immediate destruction of Jerusalem and the temple. And it's an impending, coming day. Jesus does not give a great deal of detail. In fact, one of the first details that he gives us, if you go to the second half of verse 32, one of the first details he gives us is that he doesn't know. Specifically, he says, but concerning that day and that hour, no one knows, not even the angels in heaven, nor the Son, but only the Father. Now, that's an interesting statement by Jesus. It's a good way to give the disciples a great deal of ground of encouragement to say, now, I'm going to change the subject and talk about something even more important than the destruction of Jerusalem. And the first thing I want to tell you about it is I don't know when. Okay? Nobody knows, not even the angels. Now, the Father knows, but I don't. But what's interesting is any discomfort or disorientation that we feel about this statement by Jesus, neither Jesus in making the statement nor Mark in recording the statement for us seems to have any discomfort at all. Jesus seems to think that this would be a very natural reality, that there would be something about a coming day that he wouldn't know. And Mark seems to think that that would be quite reasonable. They don't seem to have any discomfort. It seems straightforward statement that's in perfect alignment with the reality that Jesus and Mark and the disciples would understand that in the incarnation there are things that the Son doesn't know. While the emphasis of this verse is on what we don't know, and by extension then what the, not even the angels in heaven know, and not even the Son knows, in the whole of the passage, there's actually a great deal that we do know. We don't know the time. We don't know the day. We don't know the hour. But we do know a lot. Here's a, a quotation by a study guide on the book of Mark by Redeemer Presbyterian in New York. It says this, There's little consensus among Christians with regard to the details of what the Bible teaches us about the end times. End times, the, the theological term for this area of inquiry is eschatology. On the one hand, we must remember that the basic teaching of the New Testament on this could not be clearer. Jesus Christ will return visibly and personally at the end of time to judge and renew the world. Of this we can be sure. And we're given many details throughout all of the places that the scriptures speak of that day and that hour that the Lord will return visibly, personally to judge and to renew. It is truly the end of times and a, and a transition to glory. Now in our passage though, what do we know? We're told what we don't know, we, the angels and the Son, don't know the day or the hour. Well, we do know that the Father knows. We're told that. I think it's actually Jesus' point. None of you know, and it's not important. The important thing is that you know the Father knows. Don't miss the forest for the tree, trees here. You have all these beings who don't know. But we have this one who does know. You see, that we don't know doesn't make it unsure. That the Father knows makes it absolute, something about which we can be confident. The Father knows. And now what's interesting about that is the fact that the Father knows seems to be enough for Jesus. Think about that. 
Jesus says this so straightforwardly, so candidly, without any qualifications. He simply says the son doesn't know, but the father does. And that seems to be sufficient for him. And that ought to therefore be sufficient for us. The father knows that day and he knows that hour. So what does it mean that the son does not know? Now, like I said, I honestly don't think that that question is naturally in this passage. Jesus doesn't seem to have any discomfort with it. Mark doesn't have any discomfort with it. But you and I, as we understand that Jesus is God, he is not just the Son, he's the Son of God. He is uh, the, the second person in the Trinity, Father, Son, and Holy Spirit, perfectly divine forever. And as we reflect on that, as we remember the doctrine of the Trinity, we have a little discomfort. How in the world does the Son not know something. Jesus does not know in the same way that the other two groups don't know. There's three groups, right, in the passage that don't know the day or the hour. Everyone, (laughs) the angels, and the Son. Jesus, who is both God and man, does not know in his human, that is his creaturely nature. He really is a man with a mind that knows things. We're told in the scriptures that Jesus grew in wisdom and stature in the eyes of God and men. How do you do that if you already know everything? Well, in his humanity, in his creatureliness that he took on in taking on flesh, he grew and knew new things. No one knows, that is, no creature knows. Angels, not even the angelic creatures, know. The Son, in his creatureliness, in his taking on flesh, not in his divinity, in his taking on flesh, does not know. Only the Father knows. We see Jesus at other times when he knows that Lazarus is dead, though no one had told him, that Jesus knows things he shouldn't know. He knows things that no fleshly human creature ought to know. There's something divine about Jesus. There's something about his nature that is unique in humanity. Recently, we saw that Jesus knows where to find a donkey in town on Palm Sunday and directs his disciples, even though he hadn't even gone into town yet. He told them exactly where to go. There are things that Jesus knows. Jesus is a unique man because he's the the Messiah. He is the divine Son of God who has taken on flesh, and yet he still walks and operates daily and typically in his humanity. Most importantly, as we'll see in the coming weeks, he knows the coming suffering death and perfectly arranges for that encounter. Jesus knows his journey to Jerusalem, the betrayal of Jesus, the denial of Peter, and his silence before the accusers. Jesus is confident. Why? Because he, he knows he is the divine Son of God, according to what the Father has chosen to reveal to him in his humanity. In his humanity, in light of the incarnation, there are times that Jesus' knowledge most resembles other human beings. People like us. And creatures like the angels. There are times that he has a supernatural knowledge like the divine Son of God, and there are times that there is knowledge that is withheld him like any other creature in his flesh, in his human nature. 
So how do we apply that? What, what should we think about? Is that not just, a, is it just like a theological curiosity? Well, that's interesting. Thanks, Pastor. It helped me resolve sort of a bit of a question. I think there's a lot that's very practical for us this morning. We would do well to consider the example of Jesus in his humanity. It's one of the purposes for which Jesus came. It's so that we could look to him, the perfect man, and know what it is to trust in the Father. We do well to consider the example of Jesus in his humanity, his perfect obedience, his trust, and his joy in the Father. It doesn't bother Jesus that he doesn't know the day or the hour. Does it bother you? Perhaps what we have for this morning is to consider Jesus. Jesus has a trust in the Father that I want. I don't want it to bother me that I don't know the hour. I want, to, I want it to be a joy that I have confidence that the Father knows. And secondly, I think this is so important, we see Jesus now in heaven with nothing of his divinity concealed. Jesus, in his resurrected body, make no mistake, is reigning in the clouds with, according to this, own, this very passage, reigning in great power and glory. This is Jesus today. Remember who it is who has authority the, to open the scrolls, to, to unseal the seals, and look into the apolytic, uh, 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 <laughs> I don't even know, <laughs> the, the, the very end times reality of who, what is happening, what is the divine will of God for creation. Listen to Revelation chapter 5, verses 1 through 5. Honestly, it's one of my favorite passages of worship in the scripture. When I'm unsure of how to, how to worship, when I'm, I'm having a difficulty seeing who God is because I'm so confused in this life, I turn to Revelation chapter 5, and it just holds up a beautiful image of who my Savior is. Revelation 5, verses 1 through 5. Then I saw in the right hand of him who was seated on the throne a scroll written within and on the back, sealed with seven seals. And I saw a mighty angel proclaiming with a loud voice, Who is worthy to open the scroll and break its seals? Who, who looks into the end of things? No one in heaven and on earth or under the earth was able to open the scroll to look at it. No person, no angel. And I began to weep loudly because no one was found worthy to open the scroll or to look into it. And one of the elders said to me, weep no more. Behold, the lion of the tribe of Judah, the root of Jesse, has conquered so that he can open the scroll and the seven seals. You see, we can join Jesus in the trust of the Father because we know now Jesus sits on the throne and he is going to execute the day and the hour. He is going to break the seals, open the scroll, and perform the end of times. That is our confidence. This is our Redeemer. We can worship Jesus who reigns in glory. And man, that ought to change our confidence, our disposition towards something we know nothing about. I've never looked in the scroll, and I never will until Jesus breaks the seals. And then he'll come. We'll see him. What's the message in the meantime? And this is really why Jesus shares all of this to begin with. The message in the meantime in verse 33, be on your guard, keep awake. 
Now we come to the instruction, the imperative of the passage, where in the previous section, Jesus gave a specific warning about those days here regarding that day and that hour. He's far more vague, and his instruction isn't when you see the sign, when the abomination of desolation comes to the city, then flee to the mountains. Instead, he says, regarding that day and that hour, simply this, keep awake. Keep awake. Why no warning? Why no sign so we'll know like like the day before that day? Why don't you tell us what the day before that day looks like so we can know to wake up by then? No warning of the final day of the Lord. No warning except that we can be sure it's coming and that we should be on guard and keep awake for when it gets here. Why? How does that work? I would suggest this answer. I think it's because we are by our fallen nature, hopeless procrastinators. Hopeless procrastinators. We can arrange our lives around various seasons of trial. Like we see something bad coming and prepare for it the day before. When trials come, we hunker down and prepare ourselves for the time that is ahead the day before it gets here. And then when the alarm clock goes off and when the warning signs comes, when the siren's running, we can, right at the last minute, hop out of our slumber and get ourselves to safety. Isn't that the way we work? Isn't that the way that our natural dispositions so very often are? Now, I I know as I'm looking around the congregation, some of us are better at this than others. But all of us have a disposition to wait. To wait till the last moment in some capacity. But the fact is what Jesus is saying in this passage, there are no alarm clocks. There are no last minute wake up calls coming. This is the alarm clock. We must be vigilant, awake, prepared for the final day of the Lord because there's no warning. There's no warning coming. This is the warning. Jesus gave it. Mark recorded it. The Spirit has preserved it, and we've heard it. Will we wake up? This passage is the warning, the wake-up call. It's the alarm to wake up and then to stay awake. Look at verse 34 with me. He offers a parable. It's like a man going on a journey when he leaves home and puts his servants in charge, each with his work, and commands the doorkeeper to stay awake. Now, as I read that, there's a little phrase in there that jumps out at me. That the business of staying awake involves each with his work. You see? The servants were left in the house with a warning. He's coming back. I'm not telling you when. I'm not going to call ahead. There's no alarm clock that's going to go off. There's no calendar that you can look at and see to get ready on the day before. Your business as servants, while the master is gone, is each has work to do. Which leads me to this question, and I think it's a perennial question. It's a question that comes up at various points during the course of all of our lives, and one that we never really grow out of. What is God's will for my life? Another way to ask it is, how would God have me spend my days? What is God's will for my life in this age of wakefulness? What does it look like to stay awake? I've already suggested that the call upon our lives in light of the future coming of the Lord is essentially this. Prayer, 
holiness, and mission. That is, in this age, God's will for your life, what does it look like to be awake? What should be our business? What is the work that each one of us has to do? First of all, it's faith-filled dependence. A prayerfulness, a regular prayerful dependence upon the Lord. And then a faith-filled obedience to trust the Lord with the order of our lives. And then, as we trust the Lord with the order of our lives, to proclaim his gospel wherever he would send us. This is God's will for your life. And if you do it, you're going to find that you don't have time for anything else. I mean, think about it. If we're busy with prayer, if we're busy searching the Word and asking, Lord, what does it look like to be faithful today? And if we're saying, I want to go wherever I wind up today with a proclamation of your gospel, man, there's just no more time left to ask, what is your will for my life for a fourth thing to do? It's a faith-filled life to stay awake moment by moment in a faith-filled dependence upon our God. I wonder if the reason why we're so preoccupied with the question of God's will for my life is because we have some sense that we're, that, that we're, we're not doing what we ought to be doing in the first place. Kind of the sense that we know what we should be doing. And so we keep going to the Father and saying, what should I be doing? Because we really don't want to do it. <laughs> I think of it this way. There's a, a, a perfect example of, that I've seen, I've done to my own parents, and I've seen happen in my own home. It's like the kid who wanders around the house on a Saturday morning searching for something to do, looking bored out of their minds and wondering, how should I spend my day? When the parent on that Saturday morning had given chores right? They know what to do. They know they're supposed to clean the room, do the dishes, prep some area of the home that they're responsible for, and you, you stumble upon the child, and they look bored, and you wonder, why are you bored? Why do you look like you're about to slumber? Why do you look like you're not sure how to spend your day? I told you already. I think that's what's happening so often when we ask God, what is your will for my life, as if which occupation you take, as if which city you live in is the really big question. Isn't the really big question, do you trust the Lord with the order of your day today, no matter what city you live in? Isn't the really big question, what does it look like to live in this city and to work in this place and get to work in a way that makes much of the proclamation of the gospel? Perhaps we need to stop asking a question and, and look intently in faith at what the Lord has already told us to do. I would offer a couple psalms that could help us with this. One we've already read together. In Psalm 16, verses 1 through 2, it says this, Preserve me, O God, for in you I take refuge. I say to the Lord, you are my Lord. I have no good apart from you. The work that we have in this age for preparing for the master's return is to delight in the Lord and in his commands. To delight in the Lord and in his commands. And if that's true, what we do with our days is, well, whatever is pleasing to the Lord. 
what would be pleasing to the Lord this morning. A, a phrase that, there's a few things that I'll often say first thing in the morning. One of the things that I'll, I'll try to do, it began a number of years ago, was to simply pray through the Lord's Prayer and to begin by remembering our Father. It's not about me. There's an us to this day. And this us belongs to the Father today, and I'll pray through that. But another phrase that I'll say often early in the morning, and, and honestly, it's a, something that sort of comes in my mind often, is this is the day that the Lord has made. Let us rejoice and be glad in it. So what should I do today? Well, rejoice. Be glad. Go about what is pleasing to the Lord early in the morning and throughout my day. If this is true, if what we do with our days is whatever is pleasing to the Lord, it upends the perennial question, what is God's will for my life? And it replaces it with the question, what is pleasing to the Lord? You see, so much of what's wrong with the question, what's God's will for my life, is who's it about? Right? It's about me and how I want my life to be so important. And he's already told you, your life can be filled. It can be full with the pleasures of the Lord forevermore. Delight in him. Get to know what he delights in. And then enjoy it. Walk in it. I find that question is far easier to answer with a humble heart, with a prayerful, faith-filled dependence. I find the question is far easier and yet more challenging to my pride and my procrastination. It tells me early in the morning, get busy submitting to the Lord. Later in Psalm 16 in verse 11, it says this, you make known to me the path of life. The Lord has made known his will, the path for your life. In your presence, there's fullness of joy. At your right hand are pleasures forevermore. That's the path of life, to live a holy life of reverence and awe in the presence of the holy God. In the psalm, after seeking the counsel of the Lord, having in his heart instructed, the psalmist ends by laying out a three-part work for the faithful. Seek and know the path of life. That, that's prayerful dependence. Secondly, live a life in light of the presence of the Holy God. That's faith-filled dependence, moment by moment and day by day. And finally, hope in and long for the presence of God forevermore, increasingly among the lost. Proclaim the gospel. This is how the faithful life in Christ takes refuge in the Lord wakefully day after day until that day and that hour. What's God's will for your life? Prayerfully search the scriptures. Walk in faith-filled obedience and worship and proclaim his name, lest you be found to be asleep. And this is where Jesus leads us. Verse 35, therefore stay awake, for you don't know when the master of the house will come, in the evening, midnight, when the rooster crows, in the morning, lest he come suddenly and find you asleep. What I say to you, I say to all, stay awake. What Jesus is offering is a rescue plan from procrastination. We're rescued from procrastination with a call to wake up today. We're not told when the end will come because when doesn't matter. 
The Lord will take care of all that needs to happen in that day and that hour. And he's going to open up the scroll. He's going to roll it out. And he's going to perform everything that's needed on that day. Our business is to take care of what is to happen in this day and this hour, not that day and that hour. For some future is... Some future day is far less important to our question than a present now. If we're faithful now, if we're submitted in humble dependence now, we're going to be ready then. Let me offer this illustration. Uh, some of you may know that I've spent a good deal of time in the classroom, especially in my early days following college. I was a, 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 the dean of students and a teacher uh, for four years, spent some time educating my own children and others in the community here in Brevard County, and oftentimes the subject of pop quizzes come up. One of the things that I can guarantee to my students, I'm actually a pretty big fan of pop quizzes, I can guarantee to my students is that if they will study... I will tell them what to study. If they'll study, I'll tell them what. They can, they can hear my words. They can trust my words. The word there is faith. Do they have any sort of faith or trust in me that I'll tell them exactly what they need to know? Each step along the way of their preparation. They have not arrived yet to be prepared to take the final. I can guarantee my students that. But I promise you, if you'll follow me, if you'll trust me, if you'll do the work that I've assigned to you day by day, you'll be ready on the day of the pop quiz. It won't be a pop quiz at all because the one who really needs to know which day and what you need to know on that day is the one who assigns it, isn't it? It's no pop quiz at all if you trusted me the whole time. That's the call that the Lord wants from us. You see, any other way, we wind up self-dependent. I know the day. I know what I need. Rather than dependent in faith on our God, you know, Lord, today what is before me. You know, Lord, what it looks like to walk in faith in you so that I would be ready on that day. What matters isn't so much the when, but the what and the how. The when, well, the Father knows that. The what, the day and the hour, is coming. We ought to know that. It is coming. But the how is walk in what the Master has left for us to do day after day and hour after hour. Just walk in it. How kind. How kind that you and I can be rescued from discerning what we should be busy with, what we should be faithful with day after day at any particular moment, but rather we've simply been assigned it. We've been given in his word what it looks like to walk. And if you're like, well, I'm not sure what you mean by that, open up his word. I can't tell you that unless I simply read it. And that's one of the reasons why we read it week after week and day after day. And we give attention to it in, even in the preaching of the Word. This is where we're going to find it. Again, why no warning? 
The psalmist is right to remember that there is no good apart from you. The purpose of the preparation isn't simply to look busy until the master comes. The purpose of daily faithfulness is to accomplish the work of the master's household, to spend our hours and our days with what is good, lasting, and will pass through on the day of judgment. Another way to put it is this, sin is sleepiness. Have you ever been caught in a fit of anger? You just threw something, you just cussed, you just slammed your desk at the same moment that your boss walks in? You ever been caught like that? Man, Zoom has made that a lot more complicated, hasn't it? Sin is like being caught in drowsiness, forgetting where we are and what in the world it is that we're supposed to be doing. But faith, is wakefulness. Faith is remembering and believing that what the Lord has left for us to do is both what must be done and what is best to be done. I often wonder if one of the reasons why we we struggle, I think falsely, with what in the world we're supposed to be doing with our lives is that we'd like to get that out of the way so so we can get busy doing what we really want to do, being self-important or getting busy with hobbies and entertainment. If we can just check the box of what the Lord wants us to do, then we can free ourselves to do what we really want. Friends, that's idolatry, and it's in us. It's part of what's going on with our procrastination. I'll do what I want until the last minute, and then I'll do what he wants. Because I don't think what he wants is good. I think what I want is. The passage ends with this. says, what I say to you, I say to all. Stay awake. Honestly, it's one of the indications that Jesus has changed subject in this last bit. He's been answering the disciples' specific questions. Four men on a mountainside asked him a specific question, and he answered it. And now in this last section, he turns to say something to all of us. This is a word not just to the disciples. It's a word to the believers of every age. Stay awake. Prayerful dependence. Faith-filled obedience. And worshipful proclamation. This is what God's will for our lives are. I wonder this morning, are there those here who are sleeping? Is there anyone here who needs to hear Jesus' words like an alarm clock, like a bell going off saying, wake up, not just stay awake, but wake up. Our Lord Jesus Christ has shown us what it looks like to be awake. We've seen him often go off to be with the Father in prayerful dependence, haven't we? We've seen him be awake and stay awake and the disciples fell asleep. We've seen him walk in obedience, even obedience that would lead him to the cross. He says, the way of the Lord is good. Obedience to the Father is better than life, the Son says. Even in our passage today, we see him depend upon the Father's knowledge and will without a hint of wavering. He doesn't have a problem with it at all. We've seen Jesus not only proclaim the gospel, we've seen Jesus do the work of righteousness, give himself as a sacrifice in the place of sinners like you and I. We have the perfect example of wakefulness and the perfect ground and means of yours and my wakefulness. You see, the first means of wakefulness is to confess that you are in need of saving grace. The first way to stay awake is to wake up to begin with. 
to wake up to the reality that you and I have fallen short of what God has called good. But Jesus Christ has given himself in our place that we can be forgiven. So we're not only awake to the reality of our sinfulness, but we've become awake to his love and his grace. So that our business is not to be righteous. Our business is to trust in his righteousness. To be awake to what he has done for us. We trust that the Lord suffered and died on the cross because of our sin. And that means that the penalty for sin has been paid by the Redeemer. Do we believe this? Do we walk? Moment by moment, like this remains true. Wakefulness means to trust in the Lord alone for the forgiveness of your sin. And then, having been woken up by his grace, to stay awake. To stay awake means to continue in faithful dependence upon the Lord and his grace at all times. When we find ourselves drowsy, and even if this morning is a bit of a wake-up call for you, and you know it, you know it this morning, to confess, Lord, I'm not surprised. I'm just not like you. I've not walked in a righteous obedience to the Father, but you did. Thank you, Jesus, for the grace to wake me up this morning and to forgive me of my slumber. Perhaps the call for some this morning is not so much a call to stay awake, but to wake up. Wake up to the call to trust in the Lord for the forgiveness of sin. And for others, it's the call to wake up. To wake up and recognize that that because the Lord has forgiven us, because he's redeemed us, he's given us a good way to live. To wake up from the drowsiness of idolatry. The silliness of believing that there is some other good apart from the good of our God. And stay awake in the goodness of his love and grace. Heavenly Father, I thank you that we know you, that you have given yourself to us, that you've made yourself known, that, you've, that we have seen the Son. We've seen you walk. We've seen you speak. We've seen you call. God, we thank you for Jesus Christ. We thank you for the will of the Father, that there is a day that is coming where these days that we get tired of because they're wearisome. And there's hardship in these days. It's not just idolatry. It's suffering that causes us to slumber. Lord, there is a day that is coming where this cycle will end. That day and that hour is coming. And Lord, for all who place their faith in you for the forgiveness of sin and for the life that is in Christ, delighting in for you will be forevermore. Lord, I pray that if there's anyone here who has not believed in this in the past, that would believe today, and it would be a wake-up call. Your word and your spirit would be a wake-up call today. Lord, for everyone here, that we would be, be enlivened to keep awake and to search your word. What is good? What is the good way to walk in our Redeemer today? Thank you, Lord. We know that really the answer underneath of all of these is a faith-filled worship. So, Lord, would we worship you? Would we delight in you as though you were the goodness that you are? Teach us to worship in these moments, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.